Welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and we stream live at KUCI.org. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and today my guest is Chris Offit. Chris grew up in a Haldeman, Kentucky, population 200, a former mining town in the Appalachian Hills. His books include Country Dark, Kentucky Straight, Out of the Woods, The Good Brother, The Same River Twice, No Heroes, and My Father, The Pornographer. In 2020, his novel Country Dark received two international awards in France for best foreign novel. He wrote and produced scripts for True Blood, Weeds, and Treme. His television work was nominated for an Emmy. His work is in many anthologies, including the Pushcart Prize, Best American Short Stories, Best American Essays, Best American Memoirs, Best American Food Writing, Best of the Decade, New Stories of the South, and the Vintage Book of American Short Stories. His writing's been supported by a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whitting Writers Award, a fellowship from the Lannan Foundation, and a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. He currently lives in rural Lafayette County near Oxford, Mississippi, and he's here to talk about his new novel, The Killing Hills, published by Grove Press. Welcome to the show, Chris. Uh, thank you. It's nice to talk with you. Yeah, great to talk with you. I've actually wanted to talk with you about your two previous books, and I don't know why it never happened. Um, so I'm so glad to have you for this one. Um, uh, the Killing Hills is is right up my alley in terms of uh, what I'm what I'm currently um, obsessed with. Um, but I wonder if we could begin with you telling our listeners a bit about the book and how the story came about. I'd always wanted to write a crime novel uh, ever since I was a, a kid, really. I read uh, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And then uh, the, there was some investigator kids and the Dana girls, you know, anybody who solved crimes and then Sherlock Holmes. And so that's what I thought I would, would, uh, I just always wanted to. Uh, and then the other two novels uh, dealt with criminality, I guess, violence and homicide, and but they weren't uh, overt crime novels. And with this one, I just thought, well, let's uh, I'll put a dead body in the first couple of pages and then just uh, let it be an unfolding investigation. Uh, yeah, which is a pretty typical uh, trope of uh, crime narratives, whether novels or TV or movies or anything like that. Yeah. Um, then I ran into the, <laughs> I ran into a difficulty when I realized that like there's a lot of traveling between point A and point B mm -hmm. in, um, in uh, crime narratives. And in a novel, there's always lots of things for the, protagonists to be looking at and commenting on and thinking about. Um, so I had to do the same thing <laughs> in, in this really rural, isolated uh, landscape. And uh, the, the, the main guy, Mick Harden, just winds up talking to everybody he runs into, no matter what happens. He always has to, you know, get some food or get some gas or get directions. And <laughs> it's kind of made up for the uh, uh, the ability in a, you know, in say a, a novel set in LA where, uh, you know, you can always drive down the avenues, the big streets and remember what used to be there and see what's there now. And um, all the great old cars that are beside you. Mm. So how did you come to choose a brother and sister as the, uh, you know, the main characters driving the story? Uh, a couple of reasons. Um, first, having, having the, uh, th there's, a, there's a, a, the typical main person uh, for a protagonist of a crime novel, if it's a, if it's a male protagonist, usually there's a sidekick who's uh, also a male who either does the dirty work uh, in the in the in the books of uh, some some writers, or is the first one to get killed. You know, he he's a 
always uh, expendable. Um, and then the primary female relationship for the is typically uh, romantic. And I wanted to do away with both of those. So it seemed like brother and sister would be ideal. Also, brother and sister have, uh, siblings have a unique relationship that, that transcends and surpasses that of a romantic couple or, or a couple of people who uh, are just, uh, who work together. And then lastly, it, I, I really wanted to emphasize the nature of family which is the most important value in the hills of Eastern Kentucky, the loyalty to family. Uh, there really isn't anything else there to be loyal to. There's, it's just dirt and, and families, as opposed to say, uh, people are loyal to an employer. Well, there's not a lot of uh, work there or they're loyal to a sports team or to say an art theater or to uh, some external entity. And those things just, they're not, they're not in existence really where I grew up and that really leaves family. And I thought that having brother and sister working together uh, in this book would, would just kind of help drive that home. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm always curious, especially with writers who are writing crime fiction, how much you knew going in. I mean, did you, you know, I know you have a, a history of writing for TV and you have other books. Do, does um, the plot, the, the beats, does all of that come naturally to you? Or are you, are you uh, figuring all that out before you begin? Did you have to know kind of where the midpoint was in this book? Did you have to know where, where, this, where certain beats were? before you started writing or, or was it a sort of a, a discovery as you went? Um, I think of the, the term beats is only something I've ever heard used in, uh, for screenplays and it's a very regimented form, particularly the television, which I worked in. Um, but the answer to the question is no, I didn't think about anything like that at all. I just sat down and started writing and it changed quite a bit as I wrote. Uh, I, and I had to go back and cut quite a bit. Um, the first draft was much longer, over 300 pages. And, uh, and that was due to this process of just uh, going to work every day and seeing what I came up with. And sometimes what I came up with, uh, I liked. It may have been well-written, uh, but it didn't fit. It, it, uh, it veered off course a little bit. So for me, I uh, big biggest there, as much time as I put into a first draft, uh, revision is the the major part of the process. Where, like, I think I revised this book fourteen or fifteen times to get it to the state that you read it in, mm. and that's because I I don't want to uh, plan anything out. There are drawbacks, of course. Uh, you know, I've painted myself into a corner a couple of times. And I had to figure out how to get out of it by not thinking far enough ahead. But I have tried, you know, an outline for a novel before and, and I wrote it. But what I found is that the fun part was the outline, uh, a synopsis and an outline. And then once I started, um, it was just sort of like filling in colors in between the lines of a coloring book. You know, and it's, and I think that my lack of enthusiasm for filling in the colors um, affected the quality of the prose, and I wasn't happy with it. You know, if you're going to make a coloring book, it's probably a lot more fun, I would assume, to draw the initial heavy black lines than to go afterwards and have to put in a bunch of flat colors with crayons. Mm. Mm. Maybe, uh, a crazy metaphor, but that's kind of what it felt like. And so I didn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I I did that once. I did such a great outline for a project and afterward, yeah, it's like, well, I did it. <laughs> yeah, there, I, yeah, the actual writing of it was boring. And and I thought, well, I'm not going to do this again. And if it's boring when I write, then that, that affects every element of the of the process. So I figured then I'm probably just going to bore a reader to death. And that's, 
that's to be avoided. So I just kind of get started and get rolling and uh, try to, you know, usually write a page to two pages a day. And I don't, I don't go back and look at anything I've read until I have a first draft, uh, which creates problems as well, but it keeps everything fresh. Like I'll forget the characters' names, there'll be different characters' names, or <laughs> at times there'll be a repetition of information um, and I'll uh, have to go back and fix all that later. But it really keeps uh, me deeply engaged in the moment uh, when I sit down to write that day. Do you think that, um, because you've written other novels and, and other work, do you think that writing um, in the crime genre is easier in, in that you, there has to be a crime and it has to be, you know, it, it solved pretty much or dealt with at least, because it seems that in literary fiction, um, you know, you can go on and on writing beautiful prose and nothing ever happens. Um, and I've, I've heard, I've talked with uh, friends and, and writers, authors who went from literary fiction to crime fiction for that reason, because something had to happen. Well, I, I can't really comment on these friends of yours who wrote books where nothing happened. Um, I don't think that uh, any novel is easy to write. I don't think one is harder or easier. In fact, this was my third attempt at a crime novel and the first two didn't work out. So I would, uh, for me, it was difficult to, to uh, write one that would hold together. Uh, the other two were probably overly complicated. I, I was added, had ingredients in there that, uh, that confounded me. You know, one, one had to do with a, a surgically enhanced monkey with, who could read and it was escaped from the army. And the other book was a, a serial killer who was delusional into believing he was a vampire. So, you know, <laughs> these books, in, in my opinion, failed. Um, and so I don't, uh, this being my third novel, uh, attempt at a crime novel. No, I don't think it's easier and I, uh, than anything else. I mean, I'm interested in the genre because I like, I like it when things happen. And, you know, there's a lot of books I've read where not much happens and I get bored by them. You know, uh, I don't think a crime novel has to have constant action for it to be interesting. Um, but, um, a crime novels often can veer into being a novel of social commentary because in the course of an investigation, I, I realized this when I read Chandler, is that he would interact, the character would interact with uh, everyone, you know, the highs and lows of society, so to speak. And, and I enjoyed that. Uh, and that's, that is a, an opportunity that doesn't always arise in, uh, in, in a lot of books. Just, just the proximity, the requirement of somebody to go talk to, you know, a rich guy growing orchids in his private greenhouse or, you know, the doorman in a building, for example. Mm -hmm. Neither of which are, exist in Eastern Kentucky, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, that kind of brings me to another another question regarding social commentary or, um, you know, social issues that, you know, again, with um, sometimes I hear literary fiction writers um, talk about how that is something you can very much do with literary fiction, whereas with crime fiction, it's really not about that, which I, I totally disagree with. But I'm curious if you'd say more about that, because a, a lot of the crime fiction I read, and I, I read all sorts of things. I mean, I read a lot of literary fiction as well, but a lot of the crime fiction I read and like does deal with social issues. And I don't know where this idea, how this idea came about that crime fiction doesn't do that. Well, I think it's wrong. I, um, I think it's false, or maybe they're just reading bad novels. Uh the people who see this. I don't see these distinctions in the same way that you're, um, the language that you're using of distinguishing between say, 
a crime novel or a literary novel. I don't, I think that's a, those are false distinctions. And these categories are becoming more and more blurred. Uh, writers such as Jonathan Lethem has blurred those lines. Um, or George Pelicanos, um, Laura Lippmann, uh, certainly Megan Abbott, and um, Michael Chabon as well. Um, I mean, you know, when we talk about what, what's literary fiction or what's genre fiction, it's important to bear in mind that uh, Cormac McCarthy received the Pulitzer Prize for a science fiction novel. Mm. Uh, and and then before the National Book Award for a historical cowboy novel. So I don't, <laughs> I don't think about these categories in the same way that some of these other people might. And I just disagree with them. They become, uh, um, if, if all, lit, all fiction has the potential to be so-called literary fiction, and that's just typically based on the quality of the prose. There's a lot of bad books out there, a lot of poorly written books in every genre. Um, uh, and I, I've read many of them and I set them aside if the prose is just bad. So that's, that's, that's my personal uh, sort of bar or mark for what is a, a literary novel. Mm. What about categorization? I mean, there's so many genres anymore and so many subgenres, and um... It, I've seen it sort of paralyze writers. Like, what am I writing? Is it this or is it that? And mm -hmm. if it's this, do I have to maintain, you know, the rules for this? Or mm -hmm. maybe it's that. <laughs> I'm not what sure what you're asking. I don't think there are any rules. Uh, the only rule is it has to be good. You know, if you want rules, you just go play a game of baseball or softball, you know, get involved with sports. There are, there are no rules when it comes to art. And I, I treat writing as much as possible as, as an art form uh, when I sit down to work and when I revise. Um, if people are find themselves getting bound up by the rules, they're, they're inventing them. You know, they're, they're getting in their own way um, when it comes to a novel is what I would think. That's my, I mean, my response to that idea is just, well, if, dispense with the rules and write what you want and, and stop worrying about this kind of thing. You know, well, I guess, you know, I guess it, it comes um, when you query an agent and they want you to say, you know, what genre does it fall into? And, and then they want comparison titles, right? So that you have to kind of narrow down what you've done and you, you have to um, for, for agents say, this is what it is and this is mm -hmm. what it's like. Well, you're talking about sales, really. I mean, you're talking about, the, yeah. you know, a, a sales pitch to an agent. And then um, I'm, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I've really just, uh, I've had several agents and each time I needed one, I would just send them the work and let them decide. I didn't, I would, my idea was I just let it stand on its own. You know, uh, here's a synopsis, here's a, a opening chapter do you want it or not? And, you know, they, not everybody went with it. And then some of the ones that I did, that did go with it, uh, things didn't always work out as for either of us. So my experience is, is, has not included that kind of thing where I'm expected to, you know, reduce my work to a sales pitch. I, I hear that term a lot, the elevator pitch. Right. And I, it just, it just gives me, uh, uh, it, it it gives me the shivers, the idea of uh, like, what? I mean, it's, it's hard enough to write a novel then, and then you got to come up with a title which reduces the essence to a few words. And then to say, well, now I got to pitch this to it. Uh, the agent's job is to pitch to publishers, my job. And I think the writer's job is to just send the work to an agent and send it to as many as possible until somebody bites, you know, mm -hmm. if they don't want it if they reject a manuscript, well, great, because who wants to be represented by someone who doesn't really love your work? Yeah. You know? And that's happened to me, you know. I've been at this a while and have made them, you know, been through, I've made as many mistakes as you can possibly make as a writer. Hmm. You are listening to Writers on Writing. I'm with Chris Offit. His book is The Killing Hills, published by Grove Press. Um, 
I very much enjoyed the voice of this novel and I haven't read your other work yet. And I'm curious if each of your books and stories embrace the same voice or is it a matter of finding the right voice for each project? Well, again, that is something I've never really thought about. Uh, I encountered the concept of voice uh, when I was 30 and went to school for, uh, and for uh, creative writing. And people would talk about that. And I had no idea what, what, what it meant or what it referred to. Um, the only time I think it, of it, the only time it applies to me is a, a, on a pragmatic level, which is the difference between a first person and a third person narrative. With a first person narrative, it's, it's you know, I did this, I did that. It's someone, someone is telling the story and that individual who's telling the story has his or her own or their own uh, vocabulary, their own experience, their own uh, values, their own agenda, their own way of thinking. And when I write from first person, I think it's important that that be consistent with itself throughout the manuscript. Beyond that, uh, third, uh, I, I never really thought about it that way. Although I have to say this book, I had the most fun with it and I enjoyed it. And I felt like it gave, uh, for some reason or another, maybe it's just experience and maturity. I was able to, it, it feels like it's, more fully an expression of Chris Offutt and the way I think and my vocabulary and uh, uh, my mind. The thing I'd worried about before was, it was a odd little thing to worry about. Like I have a big vocabulary in my, when I read, I know a lot of big old words, you know, and I've learned them, but when I talk, I don't always use them. And when I sat down to write, they weren't always at my fingertips in a way that I admire other writers uh, who did. And I, I tried to figure that out for a long time and there was nothing to figure out, just accept it. With this, with this book and this, these, these ongoing books about uh, Mick Harden, uh, that's no longer a concern of mine. You know, I just uh, tell the story the way I would like to read a book. Hmm. Do you prefer first or third person? You find more latitude in writing in the third person? I think there is a far more latitude in third yeah. person, especially the, 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 the type of third I use, which is I'm willing to move from one person to another's perspective. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, go into the consciousness of, of different characters in a, in a, in a book. Yeah. Um, first person is... Uh, extremely limiting because the narrator has to be in every single scene you know the, nothing can happen uh, that the narrator doesn't know about uh, and uh, that's a little bit limiting it's also difficult to, like I was saying before to maintain the consistency of, uh, of what you were calling voice or or vocabulary and, and way of thinking um, I, I wrote a lot in first uh, to learn about, it. and I think people start out in first because many people do because it seems easier. The difficulty with first is that in addition to telling a story, you have to create the character of the narrator. And that can be a little bit of a drawback. It's a lot easier, for example, to say, she thought this, or she felt that. Uh, it's somehow less, it's less easy to say, I felt this or I thought that. And I think it's that subtle difference. At least that's the case for me. You know, some people write a lot in first, but what I find is when I read uh, books that are consistently in first, uh, the voices are all the same, even if they're different characters. Mm -hmm. I also see writers who have been achieved success in first, and then they struggle uh, in later books with how to get around these problems I've said. So they'll say, well, I went to so-and-so's house and she told me the following story. I mean, or, or she said that last night at the drive-in, this happened. And then it's just a way of getting around that, that, uh, uh, 
Well, not uh, the getting around the limitation of first person. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I your first chapter here is uh, is so compelling, and um, I found it really interesting. You know that that we get the crime in the first three pages, and then we move to Mick, and so. And then, of course, the story carries on. And I was curious if the first chapter was always the first chapter, if you always began with the old man in the hill. Yeah. 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 That's how it started. Yeah. I mean, that's always, uh, I didn't know who he was for a while. I changed that later. But the idea was that there would be, in order, I thought, well, if I'm going to sit down and write a crime, now I'm going to put a body in the front. Well, what happens? You can't just have a dead body lying around. Somebody has to discover it, which triggers uh, an investigation. This book is not anything like a, a, a police procedural or anything. I mean, it's out in the woods, and uh, there's a county sheriff involved in our brother uh, trying to trying to uh, gain information about it. So. It was always the first chapter, yeah. It, which is be, again practicality. He, I needed, uh, but I didn't know who she was. I didn't know how she died. I mean, I'm working on a book now in which there's, but at a two-third point, there was three dead bodies killed, people killed throughout the writing of the book, and I didn't know who did it, if it was the same person, even what the motivation was. That's what I meant earlier when I painted myself into a corner. I had to then figure out like, well, what, I mean, I'm just writing and uh, having a great time with it, but at a certain point, things have to uh, coalesce and make sense. Um, that was, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a drawback to just spending 30 years of your life alone in a room with an you know, if I'm not reading, I'm writing, and uh, or I'm just going outside and doing. I like to do physical labor outside, but those are pretty much that's pretty much my whole life, and um, <laughs> it, can, <laughs> it just runs into these odd little difficulties. Well, you know, I you, I know it's not a police procedural. I mean, I I like that about it actually, and yet you, the writer needs to know certain things. I mean, like what would happen next in terms of the police or an investigation and how much of that do you, did you have to research or did you, you know, do you just have friends you talk with that you can, you know, pick up tips or how do you deal with that aspect of the story? What aspect are you talking about? Well, dealing with the investigation. I mean, you want to get it right, right? I mean, you want to write it as it would happen. I mean, I didn't, I just made it up as I went along. Uh, uh, Mick Harden is, is, is not a a law enforcement operating within any kind of strictures. And, you know, his job is a homicide investigator in Europe in the U S army. And, you know, once you're inside something as structured as the army or, or a, a city police department, there's a lot of rules and a lot of procedure. And if a writer doesn't follow that, you know, he's going to make mis- people are going to call him on it. I just had more freedom with uh, having this be out in the woods and having him be, uh, he's not really an amateur, but he's not bound by any rules. Uh, so I just didn't worry about it. I just made it up as I went along and uh, hope for the best. I mean, it just, one thing would lead to another and there's an old, there's an old, uh, maybe it's not a saying. I read an interview many, many years ago with Raymond Chandler and they, somebody asked him a question similar and you know, what do you do when you run out of steam or what, how do you get started? And he said, well, if I don't know what happens next, I just have a knock at the door and (laughs) a man comes in the room with a gun in his hand. (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is just such, you know, BS that he's given to the interviewer. Uh, it's one of those things that sounds cool, but nah. And I'd read all of his work by then. So I, I thought, well, I'm just going to go back and look at it. And I reread uh, two of his novels. And about every 30 pages, that's what happens. 
And a man walks into a room with a gun in his hand. And I thought, well, okay, that's all you have to do is uh, if you don't know what's going to happen next, just have anything happen and see how the characters react to it. They essentially put, I would put Mick in a pickle of some type, either either peril, which is always the best one because it's dramatic and it's pressure, or uh, uh, not an intellectual pickle, but where where he was either uh, not fully understanding what was happening or what he had discovered. So to answer the question, I didn't do much research and I didn't do much planning. I just started it. My, my research material is pretty much limited to uh, reference books on uh, uh, nature. You know, I have a lot of books about flowers and weeds and I like all the proper terms for that. And at one point when it, uh, there's an element of in this book of what would happen with a guy who, if, if he was AWOL, and so I did consult a, 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 the recruiting officer here in, in Oxford, Mississippi, near where I live, and just got to the bones of that. But that's about it. I had to talk to a police officer one time to find out about uh, what was inside a patrol car and what the light thing on top was called. Like, I just didn't know that terminology. Yeah. And, <laughs> the thing on top of a light, you know, it's, it's all the light bars, what they call it. That's great, though. I mean, it's encouraging, right? I mean, especially for writers who are starting out trying to write a mystery or, or some sort of crime novel and wondering just how much do you need to know here, you know, where, you know, you have an amateur sleuth or, or the investigator and on and on. And so, yeah, I, I like your response. Let me just say that. Well, thank you. I mean, I, it's set in a world that I know inside now. It's mm-hmm. four square miles where I grew up and where that I love and I love all the people and uh, the land and the culture. And uh, when I, my, my stance when I began writing was, yeah, of course we have to have, you know, a lead character, Mick, who's running around trying to figure stuff out. But I wanted to have as the protagonist, when I was writing, the culture of Eastern Kentucky, the people, the land, the landscape, the effect that the landscape has on the people, the way the people think and talk and interact with each other. And that was far more interesting to me than, you know, obeying correct procedure. Hmm. So I take it there will be another um, another book, that this is the beginning of a series? Yeah, an accidental series. I mean, it's a product of, you know, the COVID lockdown. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I had started this book, oh, before the virus had uh, spread to this continent. And then I finished it and, well, now what do I do? I really enjoyed writing it. So I thought, well, I'll just write a sequel. Like there's, there's not my, I can't travel and I love to travel and um, I can't even go to the bookstore. So I wrote a second one, which will be out next June, in fact, from Grove. Uh, it's called Shift These Boys. It's the same place, the same characters. Mick um, is, is home again uh, to deal with, uh, to recover from wounds. You know, he's a soldier. He's, he had been, injured in a uh, IED attack. Uh, it took me forever to get IED and EID down um, to keep them separate in my head. So yeah, there's gonna be a, a series, accidental series. Is that fun? I mean, do you are you finding you like it as opposed to writing a standalone and, and go on to new characters, new setting, new everything? See, it's funny, standalone is another one of those terms that comes out of, uh, <laughs> that I've only heard genre writers use after they wrote a series. And then standalone becomes, it's a way of telling people that this is not part of a series. I, I'm not, it's not part of what I'm known for, but it's, this is a novel that will stand alone. But, um, and it's kind of a relatively new term. I, I find it interesting. Uh, uh, 
I will continue to write about Mick and these and uh, his sister and Johnny Boy, who I love, and mm-hmm. uh, the Kissick family and some of these other folks uh, until I run out of steam, you know, until I just get bored with it or something. It, for me, it's the ideal way to present uh, this part of Eastern Kentucky. Uh, because it allows a character to go all over the place and talk to all manner of people, town people, wealthy people, cold people, outlaws, uh, older people, young people. And because he's in service to something that uh, is bigger than him or her. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, talking about speaking to people, he myth gets to go around and, and do that. And you write great dialogue, which is no surprise, especially since um, you've written for TV. Do you um, read it aloud after you write it or as you write? Uh, I used to read everything aloud uh, and I still do sometimes, um, but really I just hear it roaring in my head uh, pretty much. Uh, I don't, I don't never, I never think of myself as writing dialogue. I just put, get to know somebody, put this character in an environment or a situation where he or she has to interact with other people. And then I just kind of see what they say, you know, uh, you put pressure on somebody, they're going to start talking. And that's true in real life. Uh, now, right now we're in a pressure situation. I'm sitting in my room in a basement talking to my computer, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing that it's being recorded, this, that creates a kind of a pressure. Now you magnify that pressure uh, through a, in a real situation with a, a guy who's under threat perhaps, then the response, how the, the character, the imaginary character responds to this pressure and threat and peril is gonna be interesting to, to see interesting to read interest and for me as a writer interesting to record i just walk around i just kind of follow these people around and write down what they say and what they do and then uh later try to make it uh hang together and clear out all the chit chat you know because uh, when i write i include all the stupid chit chat that we all do all the time that drives me nuts in real life but i i, I get rid of it <laughs> well I mean, you mentioned the the dialogue yeah yeah i i mean it may be obvious to you that i like to talk you know i talk a lot i talk wherever i go i lived in la and i talked to everybody all the time i thought new york is the friendliest city because i talked to everybody and they all talked to me and there's so many and they're so on top of each other there's always somebody to talk to so I think that's part of why dialogue interests me. I'm also a very, 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 very careful listener. I listen, I remember, and I'm willing to ask people questions um, that that not everybody is. I'm also, the, the trick to that I found is that you reveal yourself, reveal something about yourself first. So if I tell a stranger something about myself that most people don't tell strangers, they're going to feel comfortable enough to talk to me for a while. I think this... And I also started out writing plays. You know, I, was a, I studied theater in college and wanted to be a playwright, which is nothing but dialogue, you know. Dialogue tells a whole, the whole story, uh, trapped in, you know, a, in a, on a little stage. So all those things contributed to, to my ability to shift from prose to uh, screenwriting. Hmm. Well, in this book, there, there's such a nice balance between um, scene and narrative. And I don't know if you, is that something you pay attention to? I mean, it is, the pacing is working, it's moving, the story's moving, we get narrative, we get some backstory if we need it. Is that something that comes out in the first draft or is that within those 14 revisions? I'd say both. I mean, these are not things that I pay attention to consciously. Um, if I see, a, if I, when I'm revising, if I think a, a, there's a dialogue scene runs too long and not enough gets said that's important or deepens character or furthers narrative, I'll, I'll start trimming it out. 
by the same token, if there's a scene where there's, I think, oh gosh, this this description has gone on for two, 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 three pages. Like that's too long. Who wants to read two, three pages of description? I certainly don't. Um, there's lots of books out there that rely on this sort of thing. And they're, from, in my opinion, very handy uh, to hold a door open or something. You know, there's these big, thick <laughs> books that are rely on uh, either, you know, the writer's concept of psychological interiority or a lot of description. I don't find those things that interesting to read. So, but at the same time, to answer your question, I don't think of it as a, a striking a balance or anything. I just, um, if something's moving along, once I, I feel it sag, it's time to get out. Hmm. Yeah. I hear your dog. No, actually, that's a neighbor's dog. <laughs> oh, neighbor dog. My cats are not in the room. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, your, was your dad a writer? Your dad was a writer, wasn't he? Yes, yes that's right. And, and so, I mean, how did that affect you? How did that affect you becoming a writer? Well, I didn't want to be a writer. I didn't want to be like that. I mean, when I was a little kid, of course, I wanted to emulate my father like, any, like many children do, uh, emulate the, the same gender, you know, uh, parent, even if it's not a very good parent or even if it's a lousy role model. And then later, I didn't want to be anything like that. When um, I, you know, studied theater, wanted to be an actor and then wanted to be a photographer and this, that and the other. Uh, I think that parents influence their children uh, at a, uh, no matter what the child wants or would prefer. But um, in my case, at a certain point, I was deeply interested in photography. And I, mean, I took thousands and thousands of pictures with 35 millimeter, worked at camera store and all that stuff. And at a certain point, I realized I was, I, I, I was in my room. I lived in rooming houses all the time to save money. I never worked full time. And um, I was writing an essay about photography. And, and the essay veered into why, why photography was a better form of personal expression for me than writing. And I realized that I had, was using writing to talk myself out of writing, um, using the, my, my reasoning to say, oh, this is, I'm, I'm writing with reason to say that photography is better than writing, but I'm not out taking pictures. I'm in my room writing. So that's when I thought, oh, despite all of my preferences, maybe at heart, I am a, I'm a writer. And then it turned out that my great-grandfather apparently, or my grandfather was apparently, had, had written some short stories in the 30s. So, you know, maybe it's just part of the Offit gene. And the genetic pool, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are veering toward the end of our time. I wonder if I'm you- I'm just getting started. Well, well, then let's keep going. Okay. <laughs> well, good. And never mind. Never mind what I was just going to say, because I have more questions. But um, I was curious. I mean, you write in, in different forms. You know, you write novels, you write stories, you write nonfiction, you write for TV. Do you have a preference? Yeah, I'd prefer the novel. Yeah? Why? Yeah, I always wanted to write novels. I just started out writing short stories because they were, um, well, they were short, you know, and if uh, if things don't work out, there's not that much time is lost. Uh, and also a short fiction was a good way to, to experiment and learn. Um, and then I just shifted gears. I get, I get, I get restless. I like to challenge myself as a writer and in general, so... Um, but I really love novels. Yeah, as a, I prefer them. What about collaborating? Um, do you enjoy that process of being in the writer's room and, and working on a scene with other people? Well, the writers, the, the writing that I did for TV had a writer's room, of course, but we didn't collaborate uh, on the actual scripts. And, and typically most of the writer's rooms uh, don't. Uh, the collaborative comes when people sit around for 
hours a day for days at a time working out kind of what would be an interesting storyline for an entire season uh, stories for the individual characters usually there's you know maybe six that you're following uh excuse me um and then uh having a loose synopsis of uh of each of each uh episode and that was kind of interesting it was fun you know it 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 could it the drawback was at times it could be competitive if people wanted their idea to get chosen by the boss. I didn't, I never thought that way. It just seemed like whoever had the best idea uh, would, would, uh, was the direction we'd go. Then after that, um, the showrunner would assign scripts and each person would just go off when their time came. They would be given a specific amount of time in which to write the script. And, but you write on your own, you know, and uh, there wasn't much collaboration. I would be in phone contact with the writer whose work preceded, episode preceded mine or the one who followed it in case like um, the episode that followed the one I was writing, in case that writer needed something to be set up, you know, for, for, to be taken advantage of and vice versa. So, uh, I, I only fully collaborated twice uh, with, uh, on scripts and I ultimately didn't care for it. I mean, these were for screenplays that, that uh, none of them ever went anywhere. I just didn't like it that much, you know. Hmm. Um, I did want to ask you about the other night I saw you on something, maybe it was Book Passage or Mystery, <clears throat> excuse me, Mystery Galaxy, or maybe it was Poison Pen, but you were with Jonathan Lethem and yeah. you, you were talking about, um, you said that um, being labeled as a crime writer might be a trap. And I wondered if you'd say more about that. I don't remember saying that. Yeah, you said you were talking about, um, oh, I don't have the entire context, but you said, because I wrote it down, you said it might be labeled um, a trap, but I wanted to write The Killing Hills and I wanted it to be regarded as a crime novel. Mm, I don't remember. I don't think, well, if I said that, I just uh, disagree with it. I don't think it's a trap <laughs> at all. Um, I think that uh, in my thinking, my other two novels were crime novels mm -hmm. and my short stories uh, were also, you know, within the umbrella of crime. And when I first started sending them out, there were only three crime periodicals uh, in existence. This was probably the late eighties, early nineties. And I sent my stories to them and they rejected them. I mean, all the time. It was like uh, Ellery Queen magazine. It was three of them. I can't remember the other two. Uh, Alfred and Hitchcock. what? Alfred Hitchcock. I think Alfred Hitchcock was one, and then there was one that was supposed to be a little more hard boiled, a little more uh, modern. The Strand. The Strand. The Strand has been around for a long time too. Well, I didn't have any luck, and so I I sent one to you know the Literary Quarterly, so to speak, and that was my first publication. And it was about a man who got out of prison, came home to the hills of Eastern Kentucky and was really brutalized his family. And so to me, this was firmly in the tradition of, of, a, of a crime. And, um, but none of my work was, was regarded that way. So I don't, I don't know about this trap business. I don't, I, don't think, uh, I don't think being labeled a crime writer is a trap at all. In fact, I, I embrace it. You know, I've always wanted to do it. And uh, so now I'm doing it. What have you read lately that you love? During the pandemic, I found myself rereading mostly uh, mm -hmm. more. And I think it was at first I was surprised by it, by the impulse. Uh, and it, there's so many new books to read, you know, that I uh, that I felt almost guilty for reading, rereading. But I think it was an impulse towards solace, you know, towards uh, finding some comfort, uh, considering that the world was uh, terrifying 
and and uncertain and unknown. Uh, and then more lately, I've been reading. Uh, right now, I'm reading a novel by Ted Lewis, who was uh, this book was published in 1970. He was a British writer. He managed to drink himself to death before age 45. Didn't publish that much. Um, and it's a book called uh, I think Jack Carter Goes Home or something. It was the basis for a movie called Get Carter with uh, a very young Michael Caine. And um, I saw I saw that movie recently and, and decided to get the book. It's pretty good. And so now I shall ask you. The other book. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, the other book I just read that I really liked was by Richard Lang. It's called Rovers. Um, I don't think it's out yet. I read an advanced copy. I was able to get hold of one. And uh, I really like that book quite a bit, too. Who's I believe he's, a, he's an L.A. writer. You might Who's the author again? Lang, L-A-N-G-E. Uh-huh. Like Jessica, yeah. except no like. relation. <laughs> it's his fourth or fifth uh, book. He's a really good writer. Um, mm. And, you know, of course, my wife's book came out in March, The House Uptown. And I think that's the best book ever written. And it's far better than The Killing Hills. The House Uptown. Okay. Yeah, by Melissa Ginsburg. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now, whoops, I will ask you if you have any, any tips um, or words of wisdom for the writers listening that we haven't covered. Words of wisdom? Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, don't listen to anybody but yourself mainly, you know. Uh, uh, try to write every day. Tr the, remember there's no rules. Uh, don't try to put a lot of pressure on yourself in terms of word count or page count or any of that stuff because the more writing is really hard. So figure out a way to make it easy on yourself in the process. For me, that means setting everything where I grew up because I know it. I don't have to do a lot of research. Um, and each day when I sit down to write, which I did this morning, my goal is a minute. You know, I want to write one minute. And this is a result of trying all these other uh, techniques of two pages a day or four hours a day, or I don't know, two 2,500 words or all these little things that I'd heard about and each one of those just created pressure. And then I figured out ways to get around them. You know, if I had to write three pages a day, well, then I would just uh, write a lot of dialogue because it fills up the page fast. <laughs> uh, or if it's a page count, well, that's simple. Just uh, have a monosyllabic vocabulary. Uh, then you just get a lot more words per page. So I found that if I write one minute per day, if that's my goal, Two things. First, I always accomplish it every time. And I double it, triple it, quadruple it, etc. Uh, and it's it's really not much pressure on, on myself. You know, I know that after I have my coffee, I can write for a minute. So there's no pressure there. The other thing is it um, it kind of allows me to, to do it on you know, regardless of what I have going on the rest of the day. So I have an appointment somewhere at 11 o'clock. Well, it'd be easy to say, ah, or 10 o'clock or something. Be easy to say, ah, I got I don't have time to write. I need to, you know, they got to take a shower for crying out loud. I got to put on a clean shirt. I got to get in a car. I got to go somewhere. But if it's a minute, I don't really have that option of procrastination, you know, a minute's not going to make me late. Writing for one minute will not make me late for the, you know, for the dentist. So <laughs> I don't know if that, I love that. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, a viable tip for the <laughs> listeners. Well, I, I think it is because often one minute turns into five minutes or 10 minutes. I mean, but yeah. you've done your minute and you just can keep going if you want yeah. or not. Right? I always write more than a minute, but there's just that first minute. And some days it's just a sentence and that sentence will take a few minutes, but by golly, that's a sentence that didn't exist yesterday. You know, it's still engaging. Uh, the other thing that I think is uh, 
important is don't revise till you have a, a draft, you know, and this is a mistake I've made. I would revise before I was done with something. And then I wind up with a, a very heavily revised, very polished, say chapter. And I really liked it. And I was, uh, and it was, it was well done, but later when I completed the, the manuscript, maybe that little section just doesn't fit in. However, because of the amount of time and effort I put into it, I'm predisposed against doing the right thing, which is cutting it. Um, in other words, and you can, I can waste my time revising material that later doesn't fit. So I, I think that's an important thing to consider for, for writers is just, you know, get a first draft before you start going back and look at it because until you have a first draft, you really don't know what you're writing uh, or what it's going to be. And mm. what it turns out to be invariably will be different than what you thought it was going to be when you started or what you thought you were working on in the middle of it. It'll, it, it'll become its own, its own thing if you just give over completely to the, to the characters and the story. What if you um, are going along, you're in your first draft and you um, go, you know what, I, I shouldn't be writing this in first person. This should be in third person. Would you just change right there and keep going then in third person or go back to the beginning and recast mm, it? I've never done that. I have, uh, uh, when I, I have written a, an entire story in first and then as an experiment shifted all the third and then vice versa. Uh, this is when I was working exclusively in short stories. And um, they were none of them worked out very well because there's a way of thinking. As a writer, I'm, I'm also very interested in language and, and rhythm. And once you shift from third to first, or first to third, it throws off the verbs, it throws off the rhythm, it throws off the cadence of each sentence. So uh, and that was what I learned from that. But to answer your question, which is, would I stop in the middle of it? Like, I, I, I do what I would call pre-thinking. And that's important for me as a writer. Uh, I don't want to have to write 30 pages and realize, oh, it should have been in first person after all and start all over again. That would just drive me nuts. So I try to figure out ahead of time exactly uh, that kind of writing stance. You know, what, what, what should this, uh, this material be? When should it? You know, when should it take place? How do I approach it? Um, that's just, I, I just call that pre-thinking, you know? And some, uh, and, or, or when, would a, uh, when would a particular narrative need to begin, you know? Uh, with a short story, you know, the closer you can start it to the ending, the better you are. That's the big tip for a short story. Start near the damn ending because uh, you're gonna get there faster. Um, and the nature of a short story is it's short. <laughs> so, you know, you should do that. So, and do you have another question? It'd be better if you ask questions along those lines, because I don't, I think I'd probably know a lot about writing, but I, I don't think about it in terms of tips to spread around, you know, other than um, respond specifically. I think you're doing fine. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I wish we had more time too. I hope you come back with your next book when uh, the, the, the next one comes out with Mick. I hope you well, come back. invite me. I'll be here next June. Shifty's Boys, it's called. All right. Shifty Kissick is a character from this first book. That uh, would be great. That would and be she great. has a bunch of kids. What? I said, that'll be great. I will, yeah. uh, I'm going to write that down. All right. Thank you so much, Chris, for uh, taking the time. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. Uh, and I, I've really enjoyed it, you know, and things don't, aren't always uh, as fun and smooth. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Writers on Writing. I've been with Chris Offit. His book is The Killing Hills, published by Grove Press. And uh, we'll be back here next week, same time. And uh, lots and lots of shows on the podcast. This will go on podcast uh, a few days after it airs. And uh, you can find that at Writers on Writing 
wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening and you writers out there, uh, sit in the chair, take some time, get something done. Bye-bye.